This audio is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball. Two hours of sports analytics live every Wednesday morning, 8 a.m. to 10 a.m. Coming to you from the business radio, Sirius XM Business Radio Studios here in Huntsman Hall. Cade Massey hosting this morning with the whole crew. Shane Jensen, Adi Weiner, Eric Bradlow, professors here at the Wharton School, longtime collaborators on Wharton Moneyball, coming up on our five-year anniversary. Just finishing up an open line segment that we could have gone on for a while. Apologies to those who tried to ring in. We were too distracted by each other. That time of year, guys, there's lots going on, and that God, there's this. The, and when games do that to you, we didn't <laughs> yeah, even get I to know. Serena Williams. We got to talk about Serena. We'll save that for the last, the Djokovic. last quarter of the show. Come on, yeah, there's some things. There's some things. In this segment, we have a return guest. We're delighted to have Frank Frigo join us. Frank is the co-founder of Edge Analytics. That's E D J. If you haven't seen them before, E D J Edge Edge Analytics. These guys consult with NFL teams, NCAA teams. In sports analytics, they, in the last year, bought our friends at Football Outsiders. So they're squarely in the middle of many of the analytics conversations. Frank, welcome back to the show. Thanks, Kate. Glad to be here. Uh, Where are you calling in from this morning, Frank? I'm in Louisville, Kentucky, which is where our our, uh, headquarters are. Right, right, right. Um, You know, it's so interesting that you guys, you know, so so much happens, of course, in New York or, you know, on the West Coast. And then we've got Pro Football Focus in Cincinnati and Edge Analytics in Louisville. We've got things happening um, there in the middle of the country as well. We're glad to have you. Welcome back. Last year, you caught our attention because there was this splashy article about the Philadelphia Eagles using your services. And um, since then, you've made even splashier headlines, buying our friends Football Outsiders. And I assume you've stayed involved, probably expanding your reach. Can you give us some sense of what's gone on for you guys since we talked with you last in the last 12 months? Yeah, we have been fortunate to have, with that publicity, had some additional uh, inquiries from the NFL and NCAA teams. So we've added a couple of uh, clients this year on the on the NFL side, which is great. And um have had a lot of uh, a lot of weekly interaction. Um, we produce a lot of detailed reports on all of their decisions, help them prep for the game, and then also, as other questions arise and what if scenarios and so forth, we we consult on that. Can you give us a sense of what it is you're doing differently than other analytics organizations? My simple impression is that it's simulation based as opposed to you know something that's not quite that complicated. Is it true that the engine, kind of the core of what you're providing is based on simulations as opposed to non-simulation based analytics? That's correct. So it's all simulation based. Obviously, there's a lot of empirical data that goes into forming the way those simulations work. It's a, it's a, it's an engine that's evolved over, gosh, really more than a decade. Um, I think that so the, the the simulation is a bit of a distinction where a for, we look for you know for forward looking on on decisions, but I also think that our customization process, the way that we analyze how teams perform during the course of the season, and then create power indexes that inform those simulations and get calibrated each week is is probably a bit of a of a distinction for us. So hold on, I missed that last piece of customization you're talking about. Is that for the client or are you talking about you're just tuning the model as you go through the season by better understanding each team with each additional week of data? 
Yeah, so with each additional week of data and how they perform pass, rush, offense, defense, we're continually adjusting um, their, their expectations. So that adjusts the distribution curves sure. within the simulation. Um, and we've tested that pretty rigorously over time against you know market data, against obviously actual results, to make sure that at the opening kickoff when we're simulating a game, it's making a, a pretty representative argument of, of, of how that matchup looks. And then at any unique moment during the game, we can assess win probability. And of course, that's what allows us to do uh, comparative analysis on individual decisions to see how much uh, win probability is at stake and, you know, path A versus path B on a play choice, how much, um, how much it matters. So Frank, t- tell us something about the advantage of having that full a model, a simulation-based approach, because let's just take fourth down decisions, for example. So every team in the league has a card somewhere that says under what conditions they'll go for it on fourth down. Or we could take two-point conversions. Every team in the league has a card somewhere that says, you know, when the score is this, with this much time, you go for two, otherwise you kick the extra point. Those aren't based on, for most, for the most part, those aren't based on simulations. How is your advice going to differ because you've got this richer con- this richer basis for it? Yeah, I mean, so we, you know, we certainly can do lookup tables on a fourth and one scenario, but we've incorporated a lot of observations around, you know, other types of plays that we can use as proxies, such as third and short scenarios, that will inform our distributions. Then, as we're um, accumulating more data during the season about offensive and defensive uh, strengths and weaknesses, when we get into any unique situation during the game, if it's a fourth and one at midfield. You know, an average team might be expected to make it 70% of the time or something in that vicinity. But in our model, it's it has context around it. We're recognizing who is the, what is this matchup? How does that how might that differ from historical averages in terms of success rates? But more importantly, what are all of the the resulting iterations that affect win probability? So the, by being able to play out the, the game to conclusion. When we do a run on the first play from scrimmage versus a punt or a field goal and looking at all those resulting scenarios and then weighting them accordingly through the simulation, I think we're getting a better perspective on how it impacts win probability. Something we talked about last time is point utility, and I think that's something that often doesn't get accurately captured in other models where they're looking strictly at expected points because football is really unique in that regard as the clock decays. The, the different increments of scoring at the model, the simulations are picking up on the value of those points in different mm-hmm. types of game states. And that's, mm-hmm. I think, a really important distinction. There are times when a field goal would be huge, and there are times when a field goal would would not, even if the expected points is the same. Correct. And, and there's those very obvious scenarios at the end of the game. But when you back up the clock a little bit and you put in some different scores and some different types of matchups, those kinds of things get really murky. Um, it, it's a it's a tough one to just sort of assess, you know, on the fly. And being able to simulate really gives you some some unique perspective. So, can, um, so work with us a little bit more on that. You're saying it gets murky without the help of the simulation, and that's the value you bring. Is like it's not murky for the simulation. It sees it real clearly. It might say, "Look, there's a lot of uncertainty here," but it sees it precisely. So, give us kind of give us one broad characterization of. Not quite late game, call it third quarter or early fourth fourth quarter, where the simulation might suggest doing something unconventional. So I'm assuming oh. this is going to mean, you know, a, a, like, you know, you shouldn't 
you probably shouldn't kick that obvious field goal in some situations because even though three points helps you get up a little bit, it doesn't help you get up so much that it changes the utility of those points. Yeah, so the, there are a lot of the really chunky errors happen in fourth and short situations when teams choose, choose field goals for quote unquote guaranteed points. Right. Um, you know, there, were, there, there was the famous uh, uh, Vance Joseph case this year where he gave up the largest error that we had had seen that we've ever recorded where he was trailing by four points and decided to kick a field goal late wow. in the game. I mean, wow. I think everybody watching the game knew that that was a bad decision. We just put a lot of context around it. So that's a pretty common theme, not necessarily minus four kicking three. Most right. coaches, I think, grasp that. But there are many scenarios where they're trailing by three, for instance, or they might be trailing by two and they've got a fourth and short deep in opposing territory. And it, and looking in sort of a static mindset, oh, if I kick the field goal, that's a very high percentage decision. I'm going to take the lead all as well. But the game's not over yet. There's a lot more interaction that's going to take place. And often the, the counterintuitive piece there is that, well, even if you fail, you might get some really advantageous resulting field position that then might result in uh, a three and out and, a, and a, you know getting the ball back again at midfield or your ability to retain possession by converting the fourth down, burning more clock, keeping your touchdown yep. options open. And all of those things kind of coming together, what you see in the simulations often is that those are really clear decisions to, to be more um, aggressive. And something that, that we do, and I think I mentioned this last time as well, is you know, at the end of the day we're trying to – it's nice to know how much the error might be in terms of win probability percentage but you're trying to get it directionally correct. So we'll often go back, adjust the parameters and say, okay, the model was recommending going for it on a fourth and one deep in opposing territory. That's great. We think it was 5%, produce 5% more wins. But what happens if we create very strong counter arguments? Let's make that team a very weak rushing team. Let's right. make the opponent a very strong rushing defense. Right. How does that change it? Are we still getting it directionally correct, even with those assumptions? If that's the case, and then it gets labeled as a high confidence error, got it. And uh, and we tabulate those over the course of the season. Interesting. So, um, but I think to your earlier question about some of the other not so obvious ones are um, fourth and shorts in your own territory. I mean, it, it it's it seems like a bit of a head scratcher, but a fourth and one, you know, on your own twenty yard line in some cases is clearly right. Yeah. Um, or or even deeper to the end zone. Um, your own end zone, just because teams are generally pretty big favorites to convert those when they've got open field in front of them, even with pretty conservative rushing action. Um, but often when you punt the ball, you know, you're giving them good field position anyways, and the, the ability to continue that drive, obviously it's a very high volatility scenario, but the model doesn't really care about the volatility as much. It's just looking at what's producing more wins on average. We're talking to Frank Frigo. Frank is the co-founder of Edge Analytics. They consult into NFL and NCAA teams, especially using their simulation-based, at least the core of it initially, is their simulation-based analytics. Frank, um, one play there, or drive that really, I mean, we all we were all talking about it uh, today from, from the Sunday games for perhaps the wrong reasons. It's, it's that drive with the egregious missed pass interference play in the New Orleans uh, Rams game. Right. Have you guys egregious st- is an understatement. Just want to yeah, throw yeah. Um, but <laughs> but I think it I, I think it's hiding some very poor coaching decisions by Peyton on that 
on that particular set of downs because you know i think it was fairly obvious to a lot of us that you should be running in those on on in that scenario anyway as as opposed to passing um do you guys kind of have you kind of crunched the numbers on that particular you know drive and 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 those uh play calls to sort of see like what what the kind of optimal you know pass versus run kind of decisions are yeah so so certainly their passing on on uh first down seems to be a poor choice i mean if he does three conservative runs i mean even if he was to take a knee i think he could have gotten the ball down to a high percentage field goal with about a minute left now we're not necessarily recommending that as the best course of action but certainly passing on the first down did not seem like an optimal uh decision so i we noticed that as well but frank, frank um, but, let me build on that this is eric brad though because i want to build on this point does your algorithm allow for what I would call short-term non-optimality but longer-term benefit? Because the optimal thing to do actually in terms of win percentage may be to pass on first down. So how does your approach balance the short-term myopic greedy optimizer, the best thing to do is this, versus the longer term? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, that can get really challenging in the last couple minutes of a game in particular. Um, you know, we generally simulate on the best information we have on the opposing teams and the most common behaviors in those situations. I think this is where I go back to what you have to do is you then have to go back, if the model feels very strongly about a particular play call decision, to go back, adjust the parameters, and just see how much it gets affected. And then you can get in a, a bit of an idea on how much some of these other things matter. How robust but it certain, is. But, but certainly um, in a situation like that, we might, it, it might be easy for us to say, you know, you should run the ball there, burn more clock. But at the line of scrimmage, they could be seeing something very different where they could get, you know, a pass could be very, very effective. That, that's always a tricky part of the, the discussion. But so, so just to, I, I may be too simple to grasp this immediately, but, one of the things Eric is getting at is this local search versus a more global search. Is, it, is there any way of making sure that the simulation isn't just climbing what they, you know, these local mountains as opposed to the local hills instead of the more global mountains? How, so I don't know where the tension is in the model itself, but do you all play with that tension? Do you, do you have some means of making sure that it's exploring a broad enough space? Yeah, I mean, I think we do. I mean, we've certainly made a lot of improvements in our, uh, we, we've, We've uh, added a lot of updates into our last two-minute and last four-minute scenarios, um, looking at play-calling logic. Um, it, it is challenging because we have seen in the past where um, the way that the, the model was built and the distributions and, and um, using those in late-game situations doesn't always give you a fair assessment of win probability and that you have to look a bit deeper on the late-game logic. So. Um, it, it, it is a challenge, and it is something that we address and, and are continually trying to um, improve upon. Well, I think one answer might be that y- your approach is the global approach, that it's the it's the heuristic expected points, what's the best on this play thing that, you know, is usually what's done. I mean, that passes as advanced analytics these days. And you're saying, no, 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 you can't just look at this play. That's, that's the local hill. You have to look at what would happen – after this play 
through the rest of the game. That's the global. Yeah, I was thinking, Frank, just to build on Cade's point, Sarah Bradlow again, I was thinking that the simulation-based approach might yield the global optimum because exactly what it's going to do is look at every path after the play, simulate it out, and see which one is the best. So it might turn out, I, I don't have a mathematical proof of we're sitting here, that what you're doing may be the global optimum. And that was the intent of my question. And, and building on Shane's point, it might be why they should have run on first down, even though we know generally running on first down is not the right play right yeah i i totally follow your path there um yeah so it's uh that's exactly right i mean we're looking at the overall you know path i mean what is the clock usage what are resulting field positions what what are the resulting game states that can occur what's the distribution of those and then how successful are you in all of those resulting game states so we're always looking at I mean, everything we do is focused on win probability. Often we'll have conversations with teams and they want to focus on, you know, well, how often do I get a first down there? Or what's, you know, what's the average yardage that gain there? And those are of course all very important things, but we're always trying to look at it solely in a win probability context, which is a much broader view and looking at all of the resulting iterations. Frank, one, one element of this that might be really hard to get in there but seems important, we talk about it some on the show, but we just talk about it as a problem. We don't have a solution, is modeling the dynamic response of the other side. So you, you understand how good a team is. You might even update how good a team is as you go through a game. But it would probably be hard to incorporate, though not impossible, to say how a team is likely to respond next series if you attempt a certain play this series. And it's it, to really get the global optimum, it seems like you need that as well, because a lot of what these coaches, this is a thing that humans are doing. This is like humans being better at chess in the early, early era of artificial intelligence and chess. They're playing that dynamic. They're doing things that might appear suboptimal right now because they're setting up the defense for something down later in the game. Yeah, there's no doubt that there are, <laughs> there's value in, in that. And, um, you know, it, it's not necessarily something that we're adjusting for on a play-by-play uh, basis. I mean, I think I, and I go back to just directionally trying to get a lot of these dis- decisions correct. I mean, there's so much, um, there, there's so many obvious situations where it's very hard to argue with the model's recommendation that several percentage points, even double-digit percentage points of, of win probability right. was left on the table. Right. But there's no doubt that in almost all instances, there can be exceptional cases that move that needle based upon how an opponent might respond or making a more, you know, doing something suboptimal that might later produce yep. a value based on a, on a reaction. Yep. Frank, I want to ask a, just a real quick question. Um, I'm somewhat novice to football. So two-point conversions, are they underused? Um, I don't know. I, I think um, we generally other than the obvious cases, we generally don't see a lot of equity riding in the balance on these types of decisions. Certainly, mm-hmm. you know, there are, there are situations that everybody talks about, for instance, and this has been pretty well proven. You can do it back of the envelope, you know, trailing by 14 late in the game, you score a touchdown, you're now within eight. Um, you should go for the two-point conversion first. And I think the only team I've actually seen do that in practice, you guys might've seen otherwise was Philadelphia. Yeah, they did right. it once this season. Yep, yep. Um, that's a pretty clear, provable thing. I mean, there could be exceptional cases, but the equity in the balance is you're talking probably a fraction of a percent yeah, right. win probability. 
But it's still a very interesting choice, whereas some of these fourth and short situations, like what Vance Joseph did, that's like that's over 30 percent of win profit. Right, right, I mean, right. So um, I do think that two-point conversions are being used better. It's a little bit tricky, right, because, you know, historical averages are something like 48 percent conversion rate. But teams weren't really using them as frequently maybe as they are now. And there's some argument that some teams could obviously be much better than 48% at converting two right. points. So it becomes a more viable option. But in general, in in the more com- complicated types of decisions, they usually there's usually not a, a huge amount of difference in those. I think that's it a, might be it, somewhere in the vicinity of a percent. Yeah, it's an interesting point. Getting it theoretically wrong, but the this the, the magic impact, underdog. The impact isn't that big a deal. Frank, we have to let you go, but we appreciate you taking the time to be with us this morning. We love the work that you're doing. We, we wish you the best with it, and we'll talk with you more down the road. Thank you. Thanks, guys. You Take bet. Care. Frank Frigo, co-founder of Edge Analytics, a consultant to both professional and NCAA football here in the States using their simulation-based analytics. That has been the first half of Wharton Moneyball. We have a second half to go. Come, on, come, come back and join us after the break. For more guest interviews, check out our Wharton Business Radio Highlights podcast on iTunes and Google Play. 